Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week by Vincent Bevins. Vincent is a foreign correspondent and the author of The Jakarta Method. Thanks for joining us, Vincent. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's just to begin with, could you explain what the Jakarta Method is all about? Yeah, the Jakarta Method is a book that I wrote after covering Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. And it is about the intentional mass murder of innocent leftists or accused leftists in the Cold War. And the 1965 massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party, or, or people accused of being in the Indonesian Communist Party, is not the first event in this sort of global story, but it is the apex. It's the biggest and most important in a very horrifying narrative that spans at least 22 countries in my research. And this massacre in Indonesia in 1965 and 66 was so important to the Cold War, so famous to the world's right-wing anti-communist groups, U.S. allied groups, radicals on the far right, that they took inspiration from it, coming up with some, some something called the Jakarta Method or Plan Jakarta, Operation Jakarta. And that's what gave the book its name. How many people died during these mass extermination events? Well, so my book deals with the intentional execution of people outside of war. So in Indonesia, you have between 500,000 and a million. There's been claims of up to 3 million. In Latin America, hundreds of thousands. In each individual case around other, other parts of the world, sometimes a, a thousand, you know, in the four figures or five figures. But it adds up to, you know, seven, a, a seven fig, a seven digit figure, certainly. Um, and that's again, excluding all of the innocent people that died as a result of anti-communist warfare. So, you know, the, the millions of innocent people that died in Viet, Indochina and so on. At the time, seems to be the case that the US government and allied governments responded not with horror, but delight at what occurred in Indonesia. Is that the case? And how do you explain that? What, what political function did this awful event perform? Oh, yes. The US foreign policy establishment and then the, the media in the United States, even the liberal media, responded with delight, not only after it was happening, but as it was happening. And, and this this delight expressed very clearly to the Indonesian military is a part is a big reason of why it happened. But to explain this attitude, you have to sort of understand the real importance of Indonesia in the Cold War. So in the first the first half of the 1960s, Indonesia was widely understood in the US foreign policy establishment as far more important than Vietnam. I believe that the 
ultimate flipping of Indonesia from the leader of the non-aligned third world neutral movement in the Cold War to the firmly capitalist and pro-Washington camp may have been the, the biggest victory of the Cold War. Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world by population. President Sukarno was world famous for bringing together the formerly colonized peoples of Africa and Asia in this attempt to really forge a new destiny for the global South in which it would take its place alongside the imperialist countries of Western Europe and North America. And the United States on and off through different means with support of the UK and Australia at times, sometimes acting more independently, had been trying to crush the Indonesian left and Sukarno's version of Indonesia for a decade. You know, going back to 1955, there had been all kinds of covert op operations to, to destroy the Indonesian Communist Party, the associated movements, and the general direction that the country had been taking under Sukarno. So to ev eventually get this done with a far more horrifying and brutal method than was originally attempted was seen as a, uh, you know, sort of, this is, you know, to put it very crudely, was the final solution. So, well, for the U.S. foreign policy establishment, we got Indonesia. And the fact that we got Indonesia means Vietnam doesn't matter that much. And the fact that we did it this way meant that, you know, very few Americans, actually zero Americans had to die or suffer in any way. It was very quick. And almost overnight, Indonesia went from the leader of these, this sort of left-leaning anti-imperial third world movement to one of the most reliable pro-American capitalist authoritarian states in world history. The, the book deals with how the coup in 1965 became this sort of playbook. Could you run us through how the overthrow of Sukarno went down? Yes, absolutely. So quickly back to 1955, the Indonesian Communist Party starts winning more and more votes in a multi-party democracy. And this really upsets the CIA. So the CIA starts funneling money to a right-wing Muslim party in the hopes that this will stop the PKI from winning elections. It does not work. The PKI continues to do better and better. And we know from CIA declassified files that even the CIA recognized that the reason they were winning elections was because they were just doing a good job. They were, they were doing effective outreach to peasants and workers and all kinds of regular Indonesians. 1958, the CIA with Australian support backs a civil war in which US pilots actually drop bombs on Indonesian civilians in the attempt to break up the country. But then after the failure of this military incursion in 1958, the U.S. shifts tactics and starts training large numbers of Indonesian officers in the United States. And under John F. Kennedy, things are kind of friendly for a while. There's an, there's an uneasy truce. When Kennedy is assassinated in 1963, Lyndon Johnson brings in a whole new team in Indonesia. The, the embassy changes, and they bring in somebody that is widely understood to be good at regime change, somebody that is sort of a, a, a bruiser in the foreign policy sphere. And from 1964 to 1965, in ways we still do not understand because the CIA won't tell us what they were doing, CIA and MI6 begin to covertly agitate behind the scenes for a clash between the very popular and unarmed Indonesian Communist Party and the very well-armed Indonesian military. How exactly this clash starts who exactly, you know, down to the individual is motivated by what to kidnap six generals on the early morning of October 1st, 1965 is still very hazy. You know, there's as many, there's at least a dozen theories as to exactly what this meant. But we know that the clash that CIA and MI6 had been agitating for happened. And when it did happen, a relatively unknown 
at least to the to regular people in the street, uh, a general named Suharto immediately seized power in the country, jumping the chain of command, disobeying direct orders from President Sukarno, who still should have been the commander in chief, and begins to spread a horrible propaganda story with the assistance of BBC, uh, Radio Australia, Voice of America, and the active assistance of Australian Ambassador Keith Chan, that actually this these six people that died in a overnight military operation were killed by the Communist Party. And it was actually the women's wing of the party that had killed them in this horrific, tantric, sexual, satanic orgy of communist violence, and spreads this rumor throughout the country. This rumor is used to justify rounding up hundreds of thousands, then a million, maybe two million leftists and accused leftists throughout the country. And it is through neutralizing, let's, 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 let's say in a, in um, euphemistic terms, these left-wing supporters of the president, these left-wing supporters of an alternative vision for, vision for Indonesian future, that this general Suharto was able to eventually consolidate his rule. So by 1966, standing on the bodies of approximately 1 million innocent civilians, he is able to eventually formalize his rule over the country, pushing Sukarno into the background. And at that point, as had been discussed quite clearly between the Indonesian military and US officials, aid comes flowing back in. US corporations fly in for business conferences and swanky hotels. And Indonesia is welcomed with open arms into the quote-unquote free world in the Cold War. The massacre took place in the context of what's termed the Cold War, which is, you know, often portrayed as being a, a struggle between, I guess, uh, the Free West <laughs> and uh, the Soviet Union and so on. But what was the nature of the relationship between the PKI and the Soviet Union? Well, the it, in 1965, the Soviet Union did absolutely nothing to defend the PKI. It's important to remember that the Indonesian Communist Party was at the time of its elimination the third largest communist party in history and had was founded in um it was the oldest communist party in asia was founded even before the Re- russian revolution it had been doing so well in the 50s as a unarmed parliamentary party that was just doing better and better at elections that it really you know had its own idea of how revolution could be achieved in indonesia it was very much it believed it was big enough and successful enough that it didn't need to be taking direct cues from the Chinese or the Soviets, although, you know, they, of course, were technically, well, it's, they were uh, more on the Soviet side at some point than, than a little bit closer to the Chinese in some ways. But they, their theory of revolution was, no, you should act as a force in cooperation with the local bourgeoisie, the local national bourgeoisie in, in Marxist terminology, and, and establish true independence from colonial powers. And then much, much, much later, they, they were talking about the 21st century, a transition to socialism. So the idea that would have been assumed in the re- in the mind of a reader of the New York Times or something in 1965, that somehow this was a puppet of Moscow, could not be further from the truth. When the bodies began piling up in Indonesia, the Soviet Union issued a very mild sort of protest, but absolutely did nothing to come to their rescue or even to try to, you know, hold the West responsible or accountable in any way for, for what had been done. 
So the massacre had the, uh, obviously destroyed the PKI, but it also was an opportunity for the uh, Indonesian military and the Indonesian state to cleanse the society of uh, leftist elements more generally, those who would, wouldn't pro- properly or probably or appropriately be considered communist. Yes, absolutely. So, and this is something that even, you know, it, it, it's not only hard for us to imagine now, but it was, it was hard to, for each Indonesians to even remember two years after it happened or one year after it happened. But in the beginning of 1965, you had 3 million card carrying members of the party and then another 20 million people that would have been more or less, that would have been associated with the party in one way or another, a member of one of the affiliated organizations that was perhaps advocating for for peasants' rights, perhaps organizing cultural events uh, in the countryside, the Union of Teachers, these kinds of organizations. So then at that point, you have 25% of the country, more or less, that is explicitly linked to the party somehow or another. And then you have even more that prop, that would have voted for the PKI in an election. So that, that total number adds up to about a third of the country that was largely supportive of the PKI's project for Indonesia. So that is a lot of people. So in order to neutralize that wing of Indonesian society, you not only need to physically remove the leadership of the of the party and anybody that you think that might organize a resistance, even though they had no plan for resistance, they had no weapons, they had no theoretical or logistical ability to mount a counterattack, which is why the 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 purge was so effective. You also have to instill terror in society that anybody that is even slightly that can be in the vaguest way associated with the Communist Party could also be snatched up, taken away, to, never to return. You, you need to force the society to reproduce the discourse that justified the, the mass murder. You need to make everybody that even sort of participated in Indonesian society as it existed in 1964 afraid that that could be used against them if they did not fall in line under the new regime. And that's why this particular method of of mass terror was so horribly and tragically effective is that when you take people away from their family and they don't know if they're ever coming back, they don't know if they're already dead, it really paralyzes society. And by 1966, in the most tragic way imaginable, this this really did work. Everyone had got the message that it doesn't matter how vague your association would have been. You need to insist that you were never a part of the left. You were never a part of the, the vision of Indonesia led by Sukarno that was very anti-colonial and left-leaning. And to this day, when you meet people that live through this, a lot of them will insist upon this narrative that was forced violently onto their families in, in, in the final months of 1965. Uh, to do this book, it took me a very long time to very carefully and patiently and hopefully respectfully meet the people that have lived through it and kind of really feel out, okay, who really actually wants to talk about this? Because, you know, decades and decades later, there is still this mandate to negate the, the political vision that Indonesia had before October 1965. That was something I wanted to ask you about. How did you find the people that you talked to in the book? It took a really, it took a really long time. And um, one thing I always really want to stress with this book is that I sort of I came, I'm, you know, I'm very late to the story. I'm not even really an expert on this. I add very little to the understanding of 1965 compared to the victims and activists and scholars that have been working on this for decades and decades and decades. What I really did is sort of created a, 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 a shorter and, and digestible global story, which connects Indonesia to Latin America, and then have done my, my best in the media to try to promote 
the story and to get people to remember what happened. So I really, you know, as, as I do to write the book, I really relied upon some really heroic Indonesian activists in Jakarta and uh, Jogjakarta that put me into contact with various survivors organizations. And then over probably two years, it probably took two years to get to, to be able to humanize the story through these interviews. I would slowly make contact with these survivors organizations with the recommendation of Father Bhaskara Wardaya, who is this, this really amazing Jesuit priest uh, who's worked with survivors, or with the recommendation of Febriana Firdausa, young and brilliant journalist in Jakarta. Explain what I'm doing, explain who I am, just kind of be there next to them, live in the same city and say, look, this is what I'm doing. If you think it's good, if you want me to do this, we'll go forward. And I was very gratified that slowly they did say, yes, this is something we want to participate in. We do want this book to happen. And then I would slowly interview one, two, three dozens of people getting to know, okay, very, you know, probing very carefully who actually wants to talk about this, who can do so without really it being too emotionally difficult for them. And then getting all the stories from people that really did want to talk and try to find a way to pick the ones that could be woven into a sort of regular book that you might want to, you know, that you could give to your uncle for Christmas or whatever to, to understand this in a very uh, a simple way. So it, it really took a lot of patience and, and it took a lot of, it took a lot of learning how to deal with sort of the most horrific topics imaginable, right? You, you had, I had to really learn how to really slowly approach things and, and allow the other person to take the lead and really let them decide what they wanted to to share with me. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Vincent Bevins, the author of The Jakarta Method. There's a continuing taboo, as I understand it, uh, within Indonesia about the discussion of this event and its consequences. I also understand that it may have been the Jakarta method that uh, when uh, the term or the practice of disappearing uh, individuals first uh, took place on a mass scale, is that correct? So yes and yes. It is still technically illegal to do or say anything which is sympathetic to Marxism-Leninism in, in Indonesia. This is a law that was passed in 1966 and is still used to this day as authorities would like. So, you know, um, most, you know, one of the more recent uh, and famous cases was to put an environmentalist in jail because they just kind of cooked up the the accusation that he is somehow communist. To if if they wanted to, somebody could say that my book violates this law. I'm sure. So in in the broadest sense, it is almost illegal to tell the truth about what is about 1965. And as for your second question, yes, this is one of the few things that I really may have added. You know, this little a little wrinkle that I, I may have added to the existing understanding of what what happened. And it was John Rusa an American academic who, again, has been knows a lot more about all this than me and has been working on this for decades, that pointed me in this direction. Because we spoke in, back in 2017, I talked about, you know, I, I had spent a lot of time, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, I spent a lot of time working in Latin America, uh, living in Mexico, Venezuela, Brazil. And he pushed me onto this path. He said, well, look into this, because it's not just that the people were killed in Indonesia in 1965. It's that they were disappeared. This tactic of of not just sort of coming into a village and, and, and slaughtering everybody, but to take people away and then to kill them in such a way that their family members did not know if they were dead, he said to me, was new in Asian history. So the the point that I make in the book is that after asking around quite a bit and, and, and looking into this, 
The first time that we believe that disappearances was used as a tactic of state terror in Asia was in Indonesia 1965. The first time that we believe that disappearances were used as a tactic of state terror in Latin America was 1966. And there are people that moved from the Southeast Asia office to Guatemala in exactly that period within the U.S. foreign policy establishment. So it is very suggestive that this kind of tactic, this method was taken to Latin America after its phenomenal success, you know, the success, of course, in the eyes of uh, the people uh, ca- carrying out the Cold War on the ground for the United States government, and then reproduced all throughout Latin America. Now, in Latin America, this is a very famous concept. Now, everybody in Latin America, and often, you know, even the North Americans will know about desaparecidos, the disappeared, that this ki- this tactic, this this really spread like wildfire throughout South and Central America in the decades that followed. And yes, I think that the timing and the personnel changes are very suggestive that this was something that was kind of learned. And and, and that's a point I want to make more broadly in the book is that in the English-speaking world, we think of sort of the international communist conspiracy uh, in the 20th century as something that was operating across the world and uh, a global network. But it was also, if not more so, the anti-communist global network, often organized by major Western powers that traded tips and tricks and tactics and even personnel as they learned how to carry out regime change, how they got, how they, how they got, as they got better and better at eliminating what they perceived to be a leftist threat to the world order that they were constructing. You also make reference in the book, at least on a few occasions, to something called the World Anti-Communist League. Can you explain what that was and what role, if any, or how important was it to promoting anti-communism, do you think? Yeah, this is, again, something that's totally forgotten. In the first years after World War II, there was a number of anti-communist organizations that were founded either in Latin America or in Eastern Europe or in Asia. And in 1966, a lot of these come together as the World Anti-Communist League with the the right-leaning countries of, of Asia at, at the forefront, so South Korea, Taiwan. But this league over the, the next decades is a formal structure through which the world's anti-communists can get together and trade tricks and personnel and to organize sort of global activities. And a lot of the people that are in the world anti-communist league are Nazis or death squads, right? I mean, this Inside the League is a great book written by uh, John Lee Anderson, who's now at The New Yorker, about really what what the 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 foundational people in these organizations were uh, Nazi collaborators in Eastern Europe. And then the League also became a forum for death squad leaders in Central America and throughout the world to get together with sort of more seemingly legitimate politicians. And yeah, it, it acted globally. And it and these were the people that ultimately did win the Cold War. I mean, these tactics, death squads, regime change, terror against left-wing civilians, they believed that they were waging a global struggle. Um, they were racking up more and more victories, especially uh, as we get to the middle 60s. And then in the 70s and 80s, they basically win, right? I mean, the the as you said earlier, very rightly, the perception is that the Cold War was fought between Washington and Moscow. But if you, as I do in my book, and as I believe we should, treat every single human life as equally important on planet Earth, I think it is more correct to view the Cold War as fought between the first and the third world, with the first world succeeding 
in forcing the, the third world into its vision of a uh, uh, U.S.-led capitalist system. And it was the World Anti-Communist League and associated movements that ended up being victorious in this war, not people like the PKI or Allende in Chile or Arbenz in Guatemala. And, and, and it was certainly not the global communist movement that, that was most effective or ultimately shaped history in these years. I, I suppose it would generally be considered to be a fact that uh, communism has collapsed as a project in the last few decades. And yet we've also had almost immediately following its collapse, the inauguration of a war on terror or a war on drugs, then a war on terror. And uh, it seems that if you uh, listen to the uh, well, he's no longer on Twitter, but if you read uh, the former President Trump's tweets, he's now directing his fire at uh, cultural Marxists and anti-fascists and anarchists and all sorts of other, I guess, uh, bogeymen. Do you think that, is, is it the case, what I'm asking is, do you think that this kind of, the Jakarta method or anti-communism more generally is still of relevance and can still be deployed to these sorts of methods and methodologies and practices of continuing use to the U.S. state and to the first world uh, more generally. Yes, absolutely. So I've spent most of the last 10 years in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Jair Bolsonaro, the fiery anti-communist that now leads that country, is one, is one of only uh, is only one of many examples of the sort of return of explicitly violent anti-communism as an organizing force in global affairs. And Donald Trump's Republican Party and the Republican Party, which whether or not be post-Trump, who knows if it will be post-Trump or if he's going to just sort of hang around and haunt it, has is absolutely mobilizing these these tropes and this kind of fear of a revolt from below, fear of subversion to justify the policies that it wants to carry out. And to explain why that's true, I think we have to really put the Cold War in the the big history of the United States, right? So historians that look at these things with a really global lens note that the United States, like Australia, is a white settler colony. It was founded on the violent uh, uh, expropriation of land. And if you look at the United States now, more specifically, it had been expansionist and militaristic basically at every point in its history. So the Cold War really fit into a larger history of, number one, taking over North America, gradually pushing all the way to the Pacific, then explicit imperialism in its backyard in the Philippines, and then a- another global project to maximize its uh, its force throughout the world and its, 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 its hegemony. Uh, globally, that being the Cold War, even though at every point in the Cold War, the United States was far more powerful than the Soviet Union. It's important to, to remember that it did not require the Soviet Union to actually threaten the American way of life for the United States to pretend that it was. And then he he connects this right into the war on terror. I'm sorry, I'm speaking of Odd Arn Westad, uh, a great historian, that the, 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 the war on terror seems to be part of the same structural activity that the United States engages in, which is to find a way or a reason to act militaristically around the world to maximize or maintain its control on planet earth. And the, the anti-communist aspect of the universe of things that can be used to justify the militaristic or expansionistic instincts in U.S. politics has to do with fear of change from below, has to do with the suppression of something which is seemed to be chaotic 
or threatening to elites. And absolutely in, in Trump's presidency, certain elites believed that they were threatened in that way again, whether it was Black Lives Matter or, or anti-fascist organizations or China somehow t- becoming too g- uh, big for their britches. So I, I really, I really do think that yes, this 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 remains unfortunately relevant into the 21st century. Well, Vincent, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we'll have a few more questions on the podcast version of the show, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran. The book is The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, and it is available in all good bookstores. And, of course, people can find Vincent on Twitter at Vincent with two N's in the middle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, that's the show for this week. We'll be back again next Thursday afternoon. Global and Fada is up next. Take care. So having enacted this massacre in Indonesia, how then does the Jakarta method get exported around the world? Right. So as I said uh, at the beginning, Indonesia 1965 was not the first event in the story, but it was the apex. So you already had this kind of back and forth of victories here, losses there for the US-led forces in the Cold War. So in Guatemala in 1954, you had already had the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz and then the U.S. authorities instructing the new dictatorship that they must physically eliminate, quote unquote, communists. In Brazil in 1964, you had a U.S.-backed coup that went quite, quite well. It was very easy. The U.S. didn't really have to do much. They just had to give the, the Brazilian military the green light. Uh, in 1963 in Iraq... The Ba'ath Party seized power in a coup, and the CIA um, reportedly supplied lists again to the the Ba'athists, Saddam Hussein among them, who were in, thereby instructed to eliminate Communist Party members. So there, this this was this is going on. There's you have you know alarms going off all over the world, and CIA and associated uh, agencies being deployed to put out the fires. Some uh, as they perceive them, of course, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. In 1965, Indonesia, a big success, a hugely unexpected and sort of thorough success. You know, there was no problems lingering afterwards, as there was in Guatemala. In Guatemala, that the, the coup had led to a civil war, which was raging well into the 60s. Well, all the way to the 90s, but it was still raging as 1965 Indonesia happened. So after this big flip in Jakarta in 1965... There's two lessons that are taken around the world on the two respective wings of Cold War politics. On the left, a lot of socialist movements throughout the world, um, most importantly, anti-colonial socialist movements, came to the conclusion that nonviolence could not work. They saw what had happened to the Indonesian Communist Party, probably the largest nonviolent socialist organization in human history, and determined we must become more rigidly disciplined and self-defensive. We cannot participate in sort of, quote-unquote, bourgeois parliamentary structures. They will be used, you know, th- th- they won't matter when it comes to the, uh, uh, at the end of the day. And we need to really either pick up arms or sort of have a, have a, have a uh, strategy for counterattack. The lesson that the, the, the world's right-wing movements was, oh, this thing that they did in Indonesia not only worked very well, the United States and associated Western, allied Western powers helped them to get away with it. Not only did they really consolidate a stable right-wing regime in Indonesia, they 
had the most powerful country in history helping them to join the community of you know the of free nations afterwards they the united states helped to suppress what what they had done and helped to integrate them into the world order without any of the leaders paying any consequences as a matter of fact it was you know if you wanted to survive in indonesia in 1965 what you needed to do was help kill people not be an unarmed socialist so we have the apparent importation of disappearances into Guatemala and Venezuela in 1966, as I described. And this was to help battle, help fight that battle that had been raging since the, the coup in 1954 in Guatemala. And this is probably done covertly through the the transfer of a few U.S. personnel. But then also idea, this, 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 this catchword, this code word, code word, Jakarta, begins to be used in South America starting in 1970. And well, why 1970? Because in 1970, Salvador Allende was elected democratically as president of Chile, hoping to, for the first time in the history of the Western Hemisphere, build a path to socialism that was peaceful and democratic. So this horrified the U.S. government, Richard Nixon's White House, the Chilean elites, and the Brazilian dictatorship, which had been created with U.S. support in 1964. So in both Chile and Brazil, in the beginning of the 1970s, you see the deployment of this word Jakarta to denote the intentional mass murder of civilians. And in, in Brazil, it's sort of used behind the scenes. It's, it's, a, it's a code word for some plans which may or may not be put into to practice later. Ultimately, the the Brazilian military did not kill very many of its own people, comparatively speaking. Of course, I mean, 400 is a horrific number, but it added up to hundreds of thousands in the rest of Latin America. And in Chile, what you had was a number of terror campaigns carried out with support indirectly uh, or directly of the U.S. government on the streets of Santiago to really drive home the message to the left, like, we're coming for you. One of these terror campaigns was a graffiti writing and letter campaign that would send the message to the Chilean left that Jakarta is coming. So you might come home and see painted outside of your wall, Jakarta is coming, or you might receive a postcard in the mail that says Jakarta is coming. Either way, the message was clear to anyone that was paying attention to the Cold War at the time, which was, we're going to kill you, just like the Indonesians killed their communists. And in 1973, when the U.S.-backed coup successfully removed Salvador Allende and installed Augusto Pinochet, that's exactly what happened. Jakarta did come. Um, Pinochet immediately began rounding up and killing thousands of leftists, including some people that had received this, this message in the preceding years. And then Chile got together with Brazil and other right-wing anti-communist dictatorships in South America to put together a mass murder network called Operation Condor, which was used to trade information and carry out the execution of perceived uh, enemies of the state across South America over the next few years. And could you speak to the role that black propaganda plays in these sorts of things? Yeah, so so black propaganda is just sort of like intentional lies, right? Like intentional disinformation. And this had been used, I mean – had been, I imagine it's being used now. Um, this was used all throughout the Cold War. Uh, in Indonesia, this was very important because unlike South American countries, which like Australia, United States, or European settler colonies, Indonesia didn't really have this, this inherent natural anti-communism held by the elites. The elites had been forged in anti-colonial struggle with the left wing against the Dutch. 
it was not a normal thing in 1960 or 1955 for Indonesian elites to be terrified of revolution from below. This is just not how it worked. It it, it absolutely was common in, in South America for elites to think this way. So to get this country to flip from being broadly, you know, very used to having the Communist Party involved in national politics as a matter of course, to believing that they are quite literally satanic, evil presence on the face of the earth and need to be wiped off uh, of it, required a lot of intentionalized. And, and, and it's important to, to note that we know that they knew that they were intentionalized. We now know from uh, declassified files um, provided to us by researchers that go through State Department cables that a lot of the things that the U.S. government and uh, Radio Australia – uh, and Western media were saying about what had happened in Indonesia was intentional disinformation, and they knew that it was. For example, in my book, I, I quote one cable about a quote-unquote confession that they extract from the leader of the Communist Party before they murder him. Everybody knew that this was impossible. He would have never said this, but they all printed it anyways, right? Uh, Suharto claimed that the generals had been murdered in this horrific sex party carried out by the Indonesian women's movement, which was one of the most important feminist movements in the world at the time. We know that he knew this was absolutely untrue. We've seen the autopsy report that, that he received. And, you know, it's it's ironic now because this all came up came up again in the United States with, you know, Russian disinformation and 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 uh all of these kinds of fake conspiracy theories that spread in, uh, because of the internet now, but this is not new stuff. I mean, intentionally lying in order to discredit and ultimately dehumanize your enemies was an explicit tactic of the CIA and associated organizations in the Cold War. Another massacre you make reference to in the book is that which took place in uh, East Timor in the 70s. And I wonder if you can perhaps provide the listener with a little more detail about not only, uh, well, the Indonesian state's role and US support for it, but also what the attitude of the Australian government was at the time and the ways in which it helped to facilitate this awful event. Yeah, so as I said earlier, Suharto really was rewarded very generously for what he had done in 1965. Not only did aid flow into the country, not only did US corporations set up extraction regimes in Indonesia that would very much benefit the military elites and not and benefit the people at all. He was allowed to get away with whatever he wanted. And for this reason, Suharto became one of the most corrupt regimes in history. And then in 1974, you have the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. Portugal, we often forget, had an array of colonial possessions still, even though it was very much struggling to, to maintain its presence there in, in, in places like uh, Africa and East Timor. So, when Portugal, the new left-leaning Portuguese government, just decides to pull out of these places, the people of East Timor are ready to take over, to declare independence. Now, as you would absolutely expect, it, it would have been insane if it had been otherwise at this point in the Cold War. The Portuguese-speaking anti-colonial guerrilla movements that existed under Portuguese rule had some Marxist elements had some Marxist sounding phrases, right? They took, you know, this, this was, this was absolutely how global anti-colonial struggles were organized. This tiny, very poor country was then 
presented to the world by Suharto as an imminent communist threat, which he used to justify conquering the uh, the eastern half of the island, right? And this was done with the approval of Indonesia, or sorry, of, of the United States and Australia. And this was the results of this invasion are catastrophic. The people of East Timor, to put it mildly, did not want this Indonesian dictator to take over their island. They had just fought for the, they had just finished fighting the Portuguese for a very long time and they did not accept the, the new Indonesian overlords. As a result of this invasion, perhaps a third of the population of East Timor was killed. So this is, this is a higher percentage of the, of the people that were, that died under Pol Pot in Cambodia. This was a horrific slaughter that happened because Suharto rightly believed countries like Australia and the United States would let him get away with it. One thing I find uh, interesting about Australia's participation and, and collusion in um, the takeover of East Timor is at the time the uh, Prime Minister was Gough Whitlam, uh, uh, who was often regarded and still regarded within Australia as being a kind of the most successful leftist, I guess, leader uh, in modern Australian political history. He wasn't driven by, you know, an anti, he wasn't embarking upon an anti-communist crusade, and yet he found himself in full support, it seems, of the uh, the invasion and the, the, well, until fairly recently, the ongoing occupation. And we've also had just recently continuing scandals over the uh, involvement of the Australian government in attempting to uh, influence, uh, spy upon, to um, ensure that the oil and gas and other wealth that belongs to East Timor is, is uh, you know, properly the, the property of Australian and, and other uh, transnational corporations. So, which leads me into a question about to what extent do you think this, uh, you know, this so-called anti-communist crusade is really about uh, establishing uh, global capitalist uh, hegemony? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in sort of the most famous, the most famous coups in the English-speaking world. There's always this back and forth. Like in Guatemala in 1954, people know this history a little bit better than they know in Indonesia in 1965. There's always this debate like, well, which was it? I mean, was it because they were afraid of communism in, in scare quotes? Or was it because the United Fruit Company had successfully lob lobbied American corporations to maintain a regime which would allow them to operate freely in Guatemala? And I always say that these things are not mutually exclusive. Right. So the, the, to, to, the, to explain the policies of the United States government in the second half of 20th century, and also basically most governments that have, that try to operate outside their borders, you have geopolitical concerns and the base economic interests of the large corporations that are powerful enough to influence policy, especially in, in liberal capitalist countries where explicitly Economic interests are supposed to be able to influence government to, to make sure that they can continue to do business well. And so and in Indonesia, you again, you really had both. And like I, like I said, like sometimes it's more of one than the other. Sometimes geopolitics matters more than the economic motivation. So in Chile, for example, the extraction of copper mattered for global capital but, but 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 probably the geopolitical element mattered more for nixon nixon was terrified that allende would provide a attractive model for other countries in the global south that you could successfully give your people social democracy or socialism without a violent revolution 
So what I always say is that if you want to be really sure that you're going to cause problems for the U.S. foreign policy establishment, that you should challenge both. You should all you should be a uh, a perceived geopolitical threat, but also uh, a perceived threat to one or two major corporations operating in Washington, and then you can be really sure that there might be some problems for you. But as I said, it's best to put this the history of the anti-communist crusade and the the big history of North South relations and and U.S. U.S. corporate, you know, you, the U.S. government and the governments of other rich countries intervening in poor countries to secure a favorable environment for their corporations is something that absolutely continued to happen after the end of the Cold War. So obviously, uh, global corporations benefited massively from the regime change in Indonesia. There was 33 years of corruption, collusion, and nepotism that followed. But could you speak to the, the role that corporations played in enacting the massacres? So this happened at two levels. The U.S. foreign policy establishment, you know, this is a cliche to say, but like everybody knows it is very, is very sensitive to lobbying, especially from oil companies. It, it tends to be that if, if you have a really big and well-organized company uh, in Washington, you're going to be able to influence to a greater extent um, U.S. policy. As the massacre was happening, it became clear, it became apparent to U.S. authorities that perhaps even the Suharto regime was going to go forward with the taking uh, more national control over the oil resources within the country. And immediately the U.S. foreign policy establishment made it very clear that you this will not be acceptable, that Suharto, in order to be a partner of the United States, must keep its oil reserves open to exploitation by U.S. companies. Um, and at the, other, uh, at the same time, there was local economic actors. There were people in the country that ran actual economic operations in Indonesia that handed over lists to the Indonesian the Indonesian military as well to help in in the massacre. So there was the lobbying on like lobbying via the, the standard channels in Washington, but there was also people on the grounds that were actively assisting the military. And then after Suharto's dictatorship is consolidated, you have every company under the sun flying in to to create a uh, uh, business links with the Suharto regime. One thing that occurred to me in looking at uh, what occurred in Indonesia is, on the one hand, you had a, a relative, well, there wasn't much information that was available outside of the country about what was going on within it and why people should be paying attention. And I'm also reminded of a an argument that's made by uh, figures like uh, Noam Chomsky in regards to US interventions in Central and South America in the 1980s, which is that because you had one of the effects of the anti-war movement or the, the movement within the United States against um, the war in Vietnam is it had a certain civilising effect upon the society such that the general public was going to be less likely to support direct military intervention in Central and South America. And therefore, for that reason, apart from all the other reasons, the US had to resort to more covert forms of uh, intervention. And yet... Since then, with the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and so on, well, the US is now also still uh, engaging in direct military intervention. There has been opposition. Do you think there's a, a, you know, in terms of comparing historical eras or epochs, do you think that there's a great deal of difference in terms of the preparedness of people within the US or Australia to take notice and to act in opposition to these sorts of uh, massacres, you know, 50, 60 years later. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the historical epochs have definitely changed. 
I mean, and it's interesting that what you say about Vietnam having the civilizing effect, because even back to the Korean War, this was this was an influence on the thinking of President Eisenhower. Eisenhower didn't like the Korean War. A lot of Americans had to go over there. It was it was costly, and, and American soldiers were dying, and it had this this sort of it had effects on politics in the U.S. This is why Eisenhower initially turned to covert operations in in Iran in '53 and in Guatemala in '54, and you know the long term blowback from those operations is what leads to 1965 Indonesia and even Vietnam. But the the use of armed force is always has had always been after, especially after the Korean War, the last resort. Like you, if things really blow up in your face, then you can send troops. Now, the thing that's different about the war on, war on terror versus the war in Vietnam, and very this is you know if you understand the motivations of the U.S. ruling class uh, very cynically. Well, after Vietnam, they got rid of the draft. So after Vietnam, only poor people were going off to fight, right? It was, it was something that you could, that would be regionally contained. It, would, it wouldn't be that, you know, kids at UC Berkeley and Harvard or kids that went to high school with senators were being sent off to Vietnam. It would be, it would be more in rural areas, be um, disproportionately more people of color. And it would be easier for the for the, the polity domestically to absorb the shocks of those overseas adventures. And then again, with Obama, you move to more and more drones, right? So now, not only is it less people, you have more of them like sitting in sort of an air-conditioned mall in Colorado playing a video game whose outcome is to blow somebody's body to pieces thousands of miles away. So it's been very clear at least to me, that since 2001, the United States has been very willing or at least able to accept permanent warfare, permanent warfare for very unclear reasons. I mean, if, if, if you ask the average American what actually the point of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and you know, so many other countries around the world are, they, don't, they, they tend not to know and they tend to say, well, we should end them. But they just keep going on and on. And this tends to be pushed out of domestic politics. Like, you know, the question of ending the wars was not one of the biggest topics in the 2020 election or the 2016 election. Obama, it was for Obama in 2008. I remember this, you know, I mean, I remember him as an anti-war president and then it just kind of got pushed into the background. And so I think with this combination of things, you take you remove the war from the families of influential Americans, and then you remove the war from political discourse, from what is considered properly political in mainstream discourse. And what that means in the US is something that the two parties disagree about. Because as long as the two parties agree about something, then it's not politics in, in the in the mainstream understanding of, of of US politics. And and you put those two things together and and somehow you have a country which has been at war for 20 years for unclear outcomes. One thing I noticed in the, the text, uh, Vincent, is um, you make reference to globalization, but then you make an argument that really it should be termed Americanization. Can you briefly explain uh, why you think that's the case? So in, 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 in the first years after World War II, the countries of Western Europe were brought into a U.S.-led, <clears throat> U.S.-style model of capitalist development. And there was, you know, this is broadly seen as a, as a huge success. And I think comparatively, this is absolutely sort of one of the better things that happened 
uh, under U.S. hegemony in the 20th century was to sort of create the Marshall Plan and to bring France and Italy and, and, and the U.K. into a shared like sort of prosperity zone. But at the time, this was, this was correctly seen as uh, Americanization by some critics in those countries. Like, oh, yeah, that's great. We want to we want to re- we want to, you know, rebuild and, you know, this aid is great, but this is really turning us into a mass consumer society rather than the kind of ca- capitalist society we would like to have. Uh, and then the U.S. brings in South Korea and Taiwan into this sort of uh, privileged zone along with Japan, who was already rich beforehand. And then throughout the rest of the Cold War, the countries of the global south end up invited into the system in a very different way. They're not invited into this prosperity zone they don't their their economies are not americanized in the sense that they become rich rich populations buying sort of tvs and washing machines they become part of a global system led by the united states uh, a part of a global trading regime in which they are much poorer and largely um uh, sending natural resources to the rich countries of western europe north america south korea Taiwan. In Japan, and this, this, a lot of what happens in the Cold War is this, this free, you know, the quote unquote free world gets bigger and bigger. More countries come into this, this U.S. led system, you know, the Bretton Woods system. Speaking more in more uh, financial and monetary terms, and then with the ultimate collapse of the Second World, the ultimate collapse of of Soviet led communism, everybody ends up in this U.S. led global capitalist order that was born in the first decades after World War II. Uh, and even China, while they maintain a an internally distinct system, which is very important for understanding China's growth compared to all the other countries in the global south, they still end up needing to participate in the global American-led system, right? I mean, China's development plan for the last few decades has been to export manufacturers traded on the uh, 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 international market using dollars as the obvious and unavoidable basis for the global financial system. And to call it Americanization is to to point to something which is often forgotten, that globalization could have happened in many different ways, right? It was, it was the dream of some people, even in the 70s and 80s, that, you know, uh, peace between the US and Soviet Union would lead to sort of a, a, new, a new world order where sort of different types of systems interacted, but to the great, you know, great surprise and pleasant surprise of, of US officials, the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of the 1980s. And basically everybody ended up in the US system. And basically everybody that that joined the system in the last 30 years joined it on the side of the global south, not on the side of the privileged members in Western Europe uh, and a few Asian countries. You know, there's there's no major example of a country sort of actually becoming American in the sense of being rich and uh, a consumer-based society. They joined the American global system in which some countries, the majority of the human people, uh, the majority of the human race, uh, participate in a subservient role uh, materially. Uh, perhaps just finally, we spoke a little bit earlier about the taboo in Indonesia regarding discussing the events of 1965. There's also sort of, I suppose, an, a reluctance on the part of uh, Westerners to discuss them as well, given their complicity. But we have seen in the past few years things like Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing, 
which obviously takes a slightly different perspective than your book. How has your book been received in Indonesia? And do you think that that taboo might ever shift? I've been really surprised. I was very worried. Uh, I'm still worried <laughs> about what the reception could, could be when sort of the military finds out about the book. But so far, I've been, it's been remarkable how sort of normally the re- normal the reception has been. So Josh Oppenheimer's film was really important for making my book. And it, like it, it kind of kind of came out of nowhere to bring this back on to, to bring this, to make this a point of discussion again, not only around the world, but for Indonesians. I think a lot of Indonesians would recognize that. And the international people's tribunal that came out of uh, that, that, that happened a few years ago in the Netherlands was spurred on by the sort of surprise return of this topic. And, but with my book, we have now plans for an Indonesian translation. Um, I know for certain that um, a lot of Indonesians have read it already in English. I've not seen any sort of backlash. I was really shocked last week. I mean, uh, two weeks ago, there was a conference with some Indonesian academics, one of them, the rector of Islamic State University in Jakarta. And sort of one of my friends in Indonesia sent me this. He's like, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, like, uh, I'm going to watch this. I'm, I'm afraid of, you know, what they're going to say, but they like really liked it. Like the head of the, the Islamic uh, university he ended up sending me a text afterwards being like, this is very important for us to look at. He's sort of on the moderate side of Islam in Indonesia now. And this is of course, very relevant to contemporary politics, the fight between sort of real Islamists and sort of the other, uh, tradition within Indonesian Islam. And I'm, you know, my fingers are crossed that sort of, enough time has passed that the, the the military would just sort of let this go. But at the same time, I'm very afraid that what would happen if the military decides to make this a political issue, decides to accuse me or people that like the book of sympathy or some secret plan to bring back the Indonesian Communist Party, it could not only be unfortunate, it could actually be dangerous. So I'm, I'm really being very careful about planning when I go back or how I might launch the Indonesian edition. I really want to collaborate with my friends in the country to, to decide what, what is the best thing uh, and the best way to sort of to promote the book. Well, Vincent, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Ah, thank you.
Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.